tuning in to Doing It Differently, a podcast about creative careers in medicine. I am your host, Jenny Chang, and today our invited guest is Dr. Hesson Razavi, who is a writer and a doctor, dividing his time between his consultant ophthalmologist's work and award-winning writings about what it means to be a human being. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the production of this podcast takes place on Wajak Noa land, and I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present, and acknowledge the continuing connection to land, waters, and community that holds such deep wisdom about what it truly means to belong. Please join me in warmly welcoming Hesom to the podcast. So everyone, I'm very lucky today to have Dr. Hesom Razavi uh, with me um, to chat a little bit more about his career, his interest in global health, and what that has looked like across his life so far. So could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and the work that you do? Sure, no worries. So Jenny, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be on this podcast. It sounds great and look forward to seeing some of the episodes when they're available. A bit about me, I was born in Iran. My family has a refugee background. We were fortunate to leave Iran and find safety in the UK and then Australia, where I studied medicine and uh, then did some work in the UK, uh, some research and clinical work in ophthalmology before coming back to Australia, doing ophthalmology training and becoming an ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's my medical career Mm. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And could you tell us more about how you have creatively, I guess, added to your career over the years? Yeah. So look, the whole time that I've studied medicine, Jenny, I've also had an interest in reading and writing. Mm. Um, I loved English in high school. It was probably my favourite subject. And that's kind of continued. So on and off, I started writing poetry pretty organically when I was probably a junior doctor. And then you become busy as a registrar. There's Mm. not a lot of time for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Not no time, just less. (laughs) So once I became a consultant, I kind of decided, hey, I want to do this, um, I want to try and do this in earnest, you know, do it seriously and make time for it during my week. I think if you don't make time for stuff, then other things come in and eat that time very, very quickly. So I said, okay, here's a half day a week and here's some time on the weekend. That was in 2015. So since then, I've tried in one form or another to maintain a creative writing and my craft, if you like, is 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 writing yeah and it can be poetry uh and sometimes it's um journalism which i also um enjoy Mm. so whether it's medical journalism journalism or otherwise Mm. um a bit of freelance work in that sense Mm. um so it's a constant juggling act um sometimes they're related sometimes they're not the medicine and the and the writing um but i am the happiest And the most well, and I think probably the best doctor, when I'm able to do both. Mm, Uh, Although certainly there's periods where you're doing one and not the other. Mm -hmm. So it's a a bit of ebb and flow. Mm. Yeah. And did you find it challenging throughout your career to make time for your creative pursuits? Because I understand. Yeah, I understand that medicine can be very all-consuming. Yes. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, look, I've got a brilliant mentor Liana Christensen, who's um, a poet in her own right and an accomplished writer, and we get together on occasions, and she always tells me, do it in a homeopathic way. Just do five minutes. If that's all you have today, 
give yourself five minutes. So you just continue a little thread of continuity and then soon enough a window will open up where you've got two hours, which is about what you need to do a decent amount of writing for me. So it's difficult, but it's not impossible. You have to be a little bit crafty. You have to think ahead. You've got to be opportunistic. You've got to reduce wasted time. As mm -hmm. well. So I'm quite obsessed with time. <laughs> You've got to kind of have a vigilance. So if I can ride my bike to work and it takes 20 minutes and that's faster than driving my car, which takes 35 minutes, that 15 minutes to an obsessive person is absolute gold. Because mm -hmm. if you multiply 15 by four, mm. that's your working week, let's say, by four, five or six, you've then carved out a really useful amount of time. Mm. So it's a bit pathetic, like you're sort of, you're sort of scrambling for 15 minute blocks. It's pathetic, but it's also, it should be encouraging mm. because it's like, hey, there, there are these blocks of time all over the place that mm. I can make good use of. Yeah, so yes, yes, it's difficult, but uh, it can be solved too mm. if, you, if you sort of apply yourself. It reminds mm. me of how often we speak of time with the metaphor of spending it or investing it mm. or saving it. Yeah. Um, and I think the concept of protected time, like for hobbies or for yeah. rest um, and for family, is yeah. very important um, throughout a medical career. So. Protected time is the ultimate ideal. Mm. Right? That's mm. the ideal. Mm -hmm. But when you're a junior doctor, you don't always have that amount of autonomy. Right, mm -hmm. so you've got to be a bit more opportunistic. Mm -hmm. Once you become, become a consultant, yeah, you probably have more autonomy and you might be able to create protected time. Mm -hmm. My protected time comes and goes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's just no scope for it. So you've got to retain that thrifty, opportunistic mm -hmm. element of just doing what you can mm -hmm. when you can. Mm -hmm. The other thing to say about time, and you know, this is probably my sort of inner poet coming out, Ooh. is that. I feel like often in society, the absolute finiteness of our lifespan just isn't really in people's conscious minds. Mm. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit dark, but it's also, you know, unrefutably true. We're all going to die. And there was a philosopher who said, if you were able to stamp the date and time of everyone's death onto their forehead, yes. they'd live their life with a, a great deal more urgency. Uh, I've lost people who are close to me in my life uh, when I was younger. So perhaps I've been exposed to that sort of finality of death a bit more. And it does create a little fire in you that, hey, clock's ticking, guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got this fantastic opportunity called life. And time is absolutely priceless. And once it's gone, it's, you know, it's irreversible. Mm. So that's a bit of a dark detour uh, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this conversation. But that, mm. that is somewhere inside me and, and many other people who do this sort of work. Mm. Yeah. And could you tell our audience a little bit more about what um, your poetry often is about? Yeah, um, sure. It's about, I guess it's about the things that I know and the things that are, dear to me, or the things that just by chance I've encountered and have moved me. So when I feel moved, a lot of writers, when they feel moved by something, that's the trigger for you to know, hey, there's something to explore there. And it turns out that if it moves me, it 
will probably move other people if I'm able to capture it well. And writing poetry or any writing is the attempt to capture how something looks and feels and sounds and tastes really, really well. So for me, what does it mean? Yes, I write about medicine for sure, but that's probably a minority of my uh, work so far. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is about being a migrant and what that means traveling you know, into a new environment where you're an outsider, mm. always an outsider, which is a difficult um, experience. And family, so family and, and the migrant experience are sort of interlinked very strongly. I come from Iran, I've got a lot of family there, so a lot of my poems are about experiences or, or life in Iran. So I like to think that if you were to read all my poems, you'd probably get a little snapshot into a person's life story. Where have they been? What have they seen? What, you know, what are the important things? And sometimes the little things that have happened to them mm. that are in one way or another meaningful. Mm. Yeah. And how does one manage to capture the emotion or like capture, I guess, a memory in words? With great difficulty <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> With great difficulty. So people have this image, I mean, I still get this, of like, oh, you're writing poetry, you must be like sitting by a riverbank and just drinking coffee and, you know, you've got a beret on and a scarf around your neck. It just all sounds so relaxing. <laughs> and it's absolutely not that. <laughs> good writing it takes a lot of work. It's hard to do. And good writing is, is actually a process of rewriting again and again and again and again and again. It's a continual sort of iteration of edits. So imagine you start off with a lump of clay, just a big fat lump of clay. That's what an initial draft looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, who's, who, who can you sell a big fat lump of clay to? No one. <laughs> no one wants to see that. People want to see a sculpture. Mm. So to turn a lump of clay into not only a pleasing sculpture or a beautiful sculpture, but into a sculpture that in some way breaks a boundary, breaks new ground. No one wants to hear cliches well in fact many people want to hear cliches you know that's why people go to mcdonald's mm. because it's mainstream it's cheap it's easy it makes mm. you feel good temporarily it makes you feel good but i don't want to do mcdonald's literature <laughs> i want i don't want to do subway either <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm trying to do something that would be interesting to me mm -hmm. that i want to read and that takes a lot of work mm -hmm. i've got to do more work than McDonald's. <laughs> so the short answer is time. It, it, it's, I call it chair time. You need to be sitting on a chair looking at the page, looking at the words. And every single writer that you talk to, I guarantee you will, will tell you the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just time and dedication. And it can be quite a painful process. Mm -hmm. it, you know, pain and pleasure as you get there. And what was it like, I guess, starting to write more poetry in your career? Hmm. I guess for me, it's a, it's a kind of a joy and it's a source of delight and, and sort of nourishment mm. for me personally. And for the people who are close to me and that I share it with, it's a lot of fun for us to exchange our little poems. Then once you start trying to publish stuff professionally, in peer-reviewed, say, literary journals or poetry journals, that's quite exciting because then it's like, hey, is my stuff good enough to sit along the side of 
professional poets who do this for a living and and they don't care that I'm a doctor. They don't even know that I'm a doctor a lot of the time. Is my work good enough to get over those sorts of bars? Mm. Most of the time it isn't. I'll just tell you this. <laughs> for every 10 submissions, you'd be lucky if one gets accepted. Uh, but that's really, that's fun because now it's like, oh, I'm in the world. I'm playing with the big boys right, mm. and girls. Um, that's part of the experience. Then there's the experience of like being known as the writer or the poet in your professional community. Uh, which is, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Um, I think often people don't know what to do with poetry. Like, oh, poetry, what does that mean? I did a bit of it in high school and <laughs> I didn't understand it then and I, I don't understand it now. So yeah. you're just someone who I don't get. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, yeah, and some poetry is like that. But people are often thinking of like 18th century English poetry. Whereas a lot of contemporary poetry, and particularly the performance stuff, mm-hmm. uh, is very, very accessible. So my best friend, who is an accountant, doesn't read poetry, doesn't know about poetry, but he came to a performance event. And after he saw that, he was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. I really get it now. So, you know, people need to be exposed to the right stuff. And I want to write stuff that's accessible. Not just skillful, but really accessible so you could read it and you'd be like oh wow that's an interesting account of something and read it again and again and again and a good poem on rereading mm. you should start to find the layers that sort of underlie the initial enjoyment that you mm. should get from reading it and it should be enjoyable mm. yeah do you have a favorite style of poetry or any particular inspirational poets I think my style would be called modern verse, probably, which means that there's no set form. Mm. But um, in the last couple of years, I've become really interested in more formal uh, poetry. So there's many, many forms of poetry out there. For example, there's one called a sestina. There's an Iranian form called a ghazal. Basically, these are forms of poetry that have rules. So it's got to have this many lines or this many syllables. Everyone's heard of a haiku. Mm-hmm. Haiku has certain rules that you have to write it by. And it's very much about economy, using mm-hmm. as few words as possible in a certain number of syllables. Mm. So to then try and fit a poem into a certain form is really interesting. It's a lot of fun. It's difficult to do. Intellectually, it's great. You know, I'm sure there's lots of research on this. It's probably great for cognitive um, development and, and resilience. So... I like the whole shebang. Mm. Yeah, there's not a particular form that I gravitate to. In terms of favourite poets, Seamus Heaney is a is a well-known um, Irish poet. Mm. Pretty sure he's a Nobel laureate. He writes stuff which I consider to be both accessible and skillful. He's fantastic. There's an Arabic-Australian young poet called Omar Sark, S-A-K-R, and Omar write stuff which is very contemporary he's a gay arabic muslim man mm-hmm. living in an arabic community and you can imagine that's not an easy existence mm. right mm. so he's written a lot about those issues but just a couple of examples i guess mm. currently reading stuff by women poets in in iran often it's a male poets in iran who are celebrated mm. But these are translations of female poets who are writing incredibly rebellious stuff hundreds of years ago. Mm. 
and complaining about their husbands or their boyfriends and and they those things are so relevant they're so pertinent today even though even though they were written a long time ago yeah so go and read some poetry i think it's go to your local bookshop and just browse and see what's out there you might be surprised Mm, yep. Definitely. And it's very interesting how poetry can intersect with global health and mm. advocacy. Mm. Um, mm. Could you tell us a little bit more about your interest in global health and what that means to you? Yeah, sure. I can try. Um, so, look, medicine's great because it's universal and it can allow you to, to travel and be of some use somewhere other than your own backyard. My most impactful experience of that is visiting the Australian Offshore Detention Centres on Manus Island and Nauru. I did that in 2015 and 2016. Those experiences really, you know, I talked about being moved. They did more than move me. They sort of broke me in a way, I would say. Very confusing and difficult experiences which generated a lot of kind of angst to try and do something useful in me for people seeking asylum and refugees, whether they've arrived on boats or not. You know, back then, boats were very, very topical, mm. as you probably remember. You know, I think I sort of made a commitment to doing something about what I saw and experienced over there. And that has led to me becoming part of a network of doctors who do this sort of work. And most recently, with a group of colleagues, lobbying our Australian New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists to adopt a position statement or a policy on refugees and people seeking asylum as the starting point for then trying to think about well, what sort of services do we need to provide for these people? What are the problems that they're having with accessing eye care? And what are the solutions that we can offer? Many other medical colleges have been doing this already for a long time. So we're not starting from scratch and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have great colleagues who can help us and guide the way so that's what I'm currently working on at the moment and it's an extension of global health in a way because these people have come from elsewhere mm. so you need to know and understand where they've come from what that might mean to the kind of service that you need to provide for them mm. you know mm -hmm. in order for them to feel safe and turn up and and get the help that they need mm -hmm. uh, that sort of consumes a bit of my time and headspace at the moment mm. yeah yeah and i imagine it's a lot to take in when it comes to we have so much privilege living on it in the mm. on australian land yeah. um on aboriginal land but yeah. then i guess having a migrant background changes your perspective of belonging yeah and why is it that some people have privilege and others are denied that human right to safety yeah yeah so i mean you, you know the word belonging is the key i mean that's the, that's the subject of a thousand poems right there mm. because the need to belong is as critical to human survival as is air and water and, and, and food, social belonging. And so for migrants who have been displaced, you know, they are damaged by that to some extent and it includes health outcomes that become damaged through that experience of social displacement and and unbelonging or misbelonging the same could be said for aboriginal people in a different way who have been displaced on their own land and as we all know their health outcomes unfortunately are worse than non-aboriginal people 
and that Aboriginal eye care also occupies um, a good deal of my time. I'm privileged to be doing that sort of work. Mm. So, yeah, I think being a migrant does um, automatically uh, grant you some perspectives or can automatically grant you some perspectives that you may not otherwise have. You know what it feels like for the shoe to be on the other foot, uh, for you to be outside the room rather than inside the room. Now I'm both inside the room and outside the room mm-hmm. because a doctor is a very empowered person, mm-hmm. you know, who is who works within the system, mm-hmm. if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. I spoke to an author once who's uh, wrote a book called Why Warriors Lie Down and Die. Uh, it's an important book in Aboriginal healthcare. His name's Richard Trudgeon. He's a white Australian who's became part of an Aboriginal community in the top end very early on in his life, speaks the language fluently and is, is accepted by the Aboriginal community. And Richard's advice to me was that every Australian should be made to learn another language because it's the most direct way of accessing empathy. You automatically access a type of empathy when you have to learn another language because you step outside your sort of current identity you're forced to move outside your current identity and see that there are many different perspectives or angles on let's say what it means to be an australian or what it means to belong what it means to deserve certain privileges Mm. because that's what's underlying these health disparities Mm. is notions of who deserves what and if you came on a boat, then you don't deserve much, is the status quo or the party line of some of our political parties in Australia. Mm. And so that's where we as doctors have a lot of scope to have influence. Because when we speak together, society tends to listen. So that's a privilege and it's exciting. And to me, it's a kind of a responsibility and a duty to use our position and also use our medical skill set, hey, we know how to do stuff, (laughs) to be of use as a doctor to the patient that's in front of you and then as an advocate on a kind of broader level Mm. um, for to hopefully work for systemic change. It's interesting, though, because I often these perspectives about advocacy and also our role in, like, society, they're sort of explored in, like, medical school and like our career education but not always the forefront mm. of what it means to be a doctor yeah, yeah. Um, so i feel like your insights are very valuable about this yeah look if you go back to the original four principles of medical ethics one of them is justice mm. which is about equal attribution of resources and equal access to healthcare. so to me it was there from the start mm. and i've got colleagues uh this is very it's really common to hear this that's not our job our job is just to treat patients and i completely disagree with mm. that it was, it's been there from the start, and our uh, job as doctors absolutely means creating systems that uh, allow fair and equal access to healthcare. And so then why isn't advocacy a part of that? Mm. In our college, you know, the College of Ophthalmologists, we have seven defining roles that have been outlined for ophthalmologists in Australia and New Zealand, and one of them explicitly, thankfully, is advocacy. So our college recognises that mm. as an important job for a doctor. Yeah, that's my argument. <laughs> mm. And in what ways can poetry make us better doctors? Whether that be engaging with it, reading it, writing it? Um, 
This is a wild um, speculation, but I think if you invest in poetry a bit, it'll make you a better person. <laughs> I think I think investing in literature full stop will make... In fact, it's funny, uh, Jenny, your mentor is uh, Dr. Fiona Lake. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Fiona said, which I was a medical student, probably 20 years ago, which I remember to this day, mm-hmm. is that the best doctors are the ones that continue to read literature when they don't need to anymore when they finish high school and they're not doing English anymore, but they continue to read anyway. Good literature is just an exploration of the human condition, what it means to be a person, our strengths and weaknesses, the good and bad, all of that stuff. So I'm reading some translations of Russian short stories. One of the great Russian authors was Anton Chekhov, who you may have heard of. And these guys, all their short stories ultimately boil down to some exploration of what it means to be a human being on, on planet Earth. How can that not help you as a doctor? It has to inform your being in some way. And who you are, you know, your essence as a person, as that evolves over time, of course that affects your patience. You know, for want of a better word, your aura or the energy that you carry around you, as well as your clinical competence, of course that's going to affect patients and colleagues and the culture that you create in your practice right because we do create culture as doctors we set the tone for better or worse so you know someone once told me go to plays read books go to the opera i don't love the opera but i'll go occasionally (laughs) you know invest in culture and invest in the arts because it probably takes up half your brain matter Mm. you know alongside all the lists that we need to memorize and all the side effects of drugs and all that stuff which is so important, critical, but the two are, should be completely synergistic. Mm. So um, I think there's a lot of value in, mm. yeah, in that synergy. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a lot of inspiration for all of us to mm. go look at the arts, literature. Yeah, the look, and you don't have to go and like do some boring, formal, you know, classical music that you don't want to listen to. Follow your joy. Follow your instincts. Go down the rabbit holes that interest you it might be a video game which then leads to a series of books about a character that plays video games or a film that Mm. is about a character that is interested in something that you're interested in Mm. so don't be intimidated by the arts in quotation marks as some kind of like ivory tower (laughs) formal scary establishment that's too hard to understand Art is the advertisement for the product that you're interested in. An artist did that. Find out about who that designer is and if if that's what interests you, you know, that product. Mm. Art's everywhere all the time. It's in this room that you and I are sitting on, sitting in right now. Some artist at some point was responsible for some of the design in this room. Mm. So... um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but... (laughs) Art is accessible. Art is in your face Mm -hmm. all the time, and Mm -hmm. it's so much fun, and Mm -hmm. um, find the parts of it that you enjoy, yeah. Thank you very much for your insights so far. I feel like we all have a lot to process. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's dense. It's dense, but it's good for us. Now, um, Hassan, are you ready for some rapid-fire questions to finish off this episode? Yeah. Okay, so... Question number one, what has been the most memorable moment in your work so far for you? Oh my God, that's so hard. Mm. Um, There are many. 
Oh, look, it's not a fun one, I guess, but hopefully it's leading to good outcomes. But it have to be some of the interactions I had with patients on, on Manus and Nauru mm. because they really kind of split me in half. Um, and they've left a mark that isn't going away. So that's, yeah, both cause for hope and, and at the time, despair. Mm. Yeah. Many more steps to be made there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Question number two. Do you have any regrets in your work so far? Ooh. Um, I think no, probably. Uh, I would have liked to have studied a bit more in, in medical school, <laughs> probably. I don't know. I played a lot of basketball. <laughs> but I did okay. So, no, probably no. I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain. This is rapid fire, so I'm going to say no. Yeah. Question number three. Do you have a book or set of poetry that has changed your life? I want to say two books. One is Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography. I think it's called My Experiments with Truth. The other one is an autobiography of sorts. Uh, Martin Luther King, the civil rights activist in the States. He didn't write the autobiography himself, but it's a collection of his writings that have been put together to make an autobiography. I can't remember who the, the editor is. But those two books, absolutely uh, yeah, unforgettable for me. Mm. Mm. And last question, um, what are you currently feeling gratitude for? My family. Mm. Yeah, my wife, Megan, and my two-year-old daughter, Freya. Mm. I text Megan every day when I'm at work and she sends me photos of Freya and mm. they're the nearest and dearest things mm -hmm. to my heart. And, I, and alongside those is my mum, mm -hmm. who plays a big part in our lives and... Mm person. Thank you very much for your time, Hassan, yeah. in yeah. talking to us about what sparks your and what makes you feel alive yeah. as a doctor. Yeah. And it's so nice to hear that we can have creative careers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Jenny. Good luck with your studies and um, for this creative work that you're doing <laughs> with this podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Doing It Differently, a podcast developed by the Medical Education Unit at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth, Western Australia led by Dr. Fiona Lake and hosted by me, Jenny Chang. I hope this conversation has sparked an interest in creative careers in medicine for you. Until next time.